the first day of the week. It happened on a Sunday in the first place. It was after the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath was on the Saturday. And so the first day of the week was Sunday. It was the day that they discovered the tomb was empty. And so it became known as the Lord's Day, the day that the Lord was raised from the dead. And it's because of this first Lord's Day that we meet every other Lord's Day. It's because of this Lord's Day that we meet the other 51 weeks in the year. Okay, I just want to make that very clear. That's why we celebrate this. There's no uh, rule in the Bible that you need to talk about the resurrection on this particular Easter Sunday in April, um, but we gladly embrace the opportunity to remember the risen Lord. And I just found it interesting how in that passage um, there was a bribe issue. Did you catch that where they said, we need, we need to bribe these guards to make sure they spread the word that the body must have been stolen by the disciples. And don't worry, if it gets back to the governor, we'll keep you out of trouble. We're going to keep this low and we'll just change some money around. And I, I find it interesting, and this is exactly where this morning's message is going to go. Is there any sum of money existing in the world today which could silence the testimony of Christ? It would be impossible I mean, at that early stage, it might have seemed reasonable. We can keep this hush-hush with a bit of money. Obviously, that ship has long sailed. Uh, no amount of money exchange could silence and, and diminish the testimony of Christ and the fruit that his resurrection has borne in the world. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about. On Friday, as uh, Janelle reminded us, we commemorated his death. We met on Friday morning, the morning of the crucifixion. Uh, it was a dark day. It was a sad and, and, and heartbreaking day, f- especially for the disciples who didn't know the story yet. Remember, they, they weren't living 2,000 years later with nice leather copies of the Bible. They didn't know what was going to happen. And Christ was killed and he was laid in a tomb. And Jesus talked about this in his life using a metaphor of a wheat kernel. A wheat kernel is a very tiny, tiny seed which we know, and especially in the first century, was critical for giving life. They would bake bread out of wheat that had been pounded into flour. And so Christ used that metaphor to explain that if it does not die in the earth, it will not reproduce the fruit that it is meant to bear. Isn't that so obvious to us in nature? But he also said the same is also true for those who would follow Christ that they must leave behind whatever it is that stands in the way of following him. And without some kind of death, some kind of repentance, some kind of leaving behind your old life, you cannot enter the new life with Christ. And so this metaphor was key in explaining his death and what it was about. But the the key part of it is that we need to recognize that we were not the kernel of wheat that Jesus was talking about. Jesus wasn't saying, when you give up your life, boy, you're gonna change the world. He said, when I give up my life, I will change the world. That is the message of Christ, that he is the seed which dies and bears much fruit. I'm going to read our passage this morning. It's the same three verses we looked at on Good Friday. And so if you were here, it's, it is a different message. And if you weren't here, you can sort of get a sense of where Christ was going. He said in John chapter 12, <clears throat> starting in verse 23, he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name. I'm going to pray before we uh, understand this passage. Father, thank you for uh, your word which has cleansed us and made us a people. We thank you for those in our midst, Lord, who might not know your word very familiar, um, with much familiarity. I pray that you would open all of our hearts equally to its profound, uh, life-changing implications. May the power of your Holy Spirit confirm the words that we hear and uh, give us strength to live for Christ. And we thank you that this is all, all only possible because Jesus first left that tomb behind with his burial clothes neatly folded inside What tremendous hope for the believer. We pray this all together in Jesus' name, amen. And so when we come to Resurrection Sunday, we still have to deal with some of these words that Christ uh, uttered before he died because he said the hour is here for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then at the end of our passage, he says, Father, glorify your name. And so there's an element as we enter into Easter weekend of glory that we need to deal with. And it causes us to ask the question, where is the glory? Where is the glory that Christ was claiming to to have as he entered the crucifixion? Jesus has reached at this point in his ministry the very pinnacle of why he came. Throughout the Gospel of John where we're looking this morning, if you read it very carefully, you'll notice that Jesus says over and over and over again, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And you kind of think, then, then why all the fanfare? What are you doing all these other things for? What's with all the teaching and the miracles and all these other things? Aren't those important also? Christ maintained that his pinnacle purpose, the absolute reason for his existence on the earth, was this moment. This moment in Jerusalem where he was wanted for an execution by the Jews. <clears throat> And so he finally reveals. He finally pulls the curtain back and says, this is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is it for those who have been watching. This is the hour that you have been waiting for and that I have come into this world to achieve. It's an odd phrase to say that he will be glorified at this hour. Why? Because he was wanted for execution in Jerusalem. He knew that and his disciples knew that and they warned him not to go back to Jerusalem. They knew that there was a bounty on his head for execution. And because of that, the Jews, when he came in, they took him into custody and they handed him over to the Romans who executed him. Now, we're not going to dwell heavily on the execution of Christ, but we do need to know, in order to understand the oddity of Christ using the phrase to be glorified, that a Roman execution was designed a Roman execution on the cross, was designed to keep its victim alive for as long as possible in the highest degree of pain possible. This is how our Lord was killed. The Jewish stoning was much more merciful. I mean, it sounds like an awful way to die as well, but the Jews, instead of stoning him, which would have been much quicker, handed him to the Romans who executed him on a cross. It was designed for the victim to experience the most amount of shame, physical pain, and suffering. 
It was done publicly on an actual hill. It was designed to deter other traitors from the Roman Empire from acting out. It was designed to say, this will be your end if you come against the Roman Empire. Our Lord could not have been put on greater shameful display in his crucifixion. So why did he say, I am going to be glorified? It doesn't make sense to us unless we understand what was happening in the crucifixion. If we look in this very same chapter ahead to um, chapter 12, verse 32, he said, now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will, this is the phrase, I will draw all people to myself. So in the crucifixion, Christ recognized that when he was lifted up physically, literally from the earth on a cross, that it would be the sign to those seeking eternal life to come and that they would. In other words, when I am lifted up, many will come to believe in me. They will receive me. They will understand my saving nature toward them. I will draw all men to myself. It would be those seeking eternal life, those recognizing like the kernel of seed that they must die in order to receive eternal life. So in other words, the crucifixion was going to cement his identity and his teaching into the lives of untold millions beginning in that generation. Beginning in that generation, once he was crucified and especially raised again and resurrected, that it would cement the belief of people in who he was. This is especially important because throughout Jesus' ministry, his identity was really misunderstood. Some people thought, well, are you a coming prophet? Um, Are you from God? Are you from Satan? Even his own disciples thought that he was a military leader. His identity was badly confused during the time of his life. I mean, you would think, if you're looking at a biography of Christ, you would think, there's a problem here. He's not being very effective as a leader. But it wasn't until his hour that people finally understood who he was and what he was doing. And it vindicated and it totally confirmed every claim that he had made, which he had been so badly abused for, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be God himself, claiming to be the revelation of God, all fully vindicated when he was raised up. He drew men to himself. And those people believed. And so Christ is fully vindicated in this hour of glorification. How else? How is the Father glorified? He says, glorify my name. And then there's this amazing part. I don't know if you know this is in your Bibles. But then after he says, Father, glorify your name, then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. So God responds in this moment and says, I will glorify my name in this hour. How did this happen? How is, how is God's glory on display? What we need to recognize is that the entire Bible was written by God on his behalf through men to tell the story of redemption. God has worked throughout history. And if you've been with us in our series in the book of Acts. Right now we're looking at Stephen's speech where he's detailing God's redemption throughout the whole Old Testament. God is at work through the whole Old Testament. He saves the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. He brings them out into the wilderness. He gives them a law. He brings them into the promised land. 
He gives them kings. He is with them throughout their history. And God now in Christ is the culmination of that plan. It's the fulfillment. It is the ratification. It is the seal of that plan of redemption. It is the final work of redemption that God is going to perform. It is the finality of his salvation. It's amazing because in Romans chapter 11, Paul lays out the whole story of God's redemption from from the beginning, through the patriarchs, through the Old Testament, through Israel. He tells all this stuff and then he culminates in Christ and he comes to this pinnacle of Christ and then as he describes the salvation through Christ, he comes to the end in chapter 11 and he says, oh, the unsearchable riches of the wisdom of God. In other words, when God revealed Christ, he revealed his perfect wisdom and salvation. God's redemptive plan, coupled with Christ's obedience, the Son, depicted a glorious, amazing, final, wise, just plan for salvation for you and me. Not just in just some generic sense, it went to the Hall of Fame of redemption plans, but it actually redeemed people. It actually drew people into a relationship with God. So much so was Christ's death and resurrection central to God's redemptive plan. Romans 3 tells us this, that Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, in other words, as God put forward as a satisfaction for the penalty of sin, it was to show his righteousness. Why? Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Do you see that? What he's saying is that in the Old Testament, God passed over sin. He passed it over. He didn't judge it immediately. He passed over sin committed in the Old Testament knowing that when Christ came, it would clear the decks. That all who had faith in God would be fully forgiven by God in Jesus Christ. So past, present, or future, anybody who knows God personally and has a relationship with him, it's because of this Jesus Christ at this hour who shows God's righteousness and pays for our sin at the cross. The coming of Christ was God's unrestrained revelation to us. The Bible tells us that before Jesus came, God spoke in a lot of different ways, including through a donkey, including through a pillar of um, cloud and a pillar of fire. God spoke in many different ways. But then when Christ came, he finally spoke utterly, directly, and clearly. Why? Because Jesus, we're told, is the word of God wrapped in flesh. He is the very word of God among his people. The most uh, relatable, understandable, plain word of God in front of us. Not in symbols, not in obscure dreams or visions or metaphors, but the word of God, God himself in front of us. It was unrestrained revelation. God was glorified in this hour because of the unity of redemption between the Father and the Son. Remember, the son did not go to the cross kicking and screaming. He did not go against his father's will. He did not hold back or save himself. Even in the garden when he said, Father, if it's possible, please let this pass from me. Please don't let me go through this separation from you. Yet not as I will, but as you will, Father. And then he went to the cross willingly. And Christ even said, I do not have my life taken from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative and I will take it up again. 
God is glorified as the empty tomb seals the promises that he made and seals the accomplishment of redemption in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus coming to this hour says, I will be glorified and my Father will be glorified. Now this phrase, much fruit, we move into the reality of the resurrection. So as Christ approached his crucifixion, we understand that it was all in God's plan. It was God's uh, divine wisdom bringing about redemption and also achieving justice. We have this phrase, we have this promise from Christ saying, if a grain of wheat goes into the earth, it dies. And if it dies, it bears much fruit. It bears much fruit. So we recognize that Christ went willingly as a kernel of wheat into the ground so that what? So that fruit would be born. So the first part of our outline is, where's the glory? We see it in the crucifixion and redemption. Our second question is, what is the fruit? And there are two ways I want to outline this fruit for you. Our previous study on Friday showed us that the only possible route for Jesus Christ was death. We knew that, that there was no other way for God to achieve redemption for humanity but through the death of Christ. Jesus recognized that without his own death, his life and his ministry would otherwise be nothing more than an impressive footnote in religious history. Aren't there a lot of great religious leaders in our history? Men who accomplished great followings, wrote great books, uh, received quite a lot of fame, money, riches, notoriety because of their religious devotion and belief, yet how many can we put up in comparison with Jesus Christ? It's not even a discussion. Without his death and resurrection, Jesus recognized that he would be nothing more than one of these characters, one of these interesting leaders with very profound teaching. And Christ knew that that was insufficient, insufficient. It would not be enough to give you and I eternal life. Following Jesus' teachings is not how we get to heaven. It is not how God redeems us. Not by following as closely as we can and adopting our best practices and following as closely as we can to the word of God. That's not how we get eternal life. You know how we get eternal life? We die with Christ. We die to sin. And he raises us up in new life. Death and resurrection is the only way to walk in newness of life. So this otherwise horrifying event would be something that brings forth something new, something brand new. So with a kernel of wheat, I just want to talk about this before we launch into the fruit, has an outer shell. It's all very small. A kernel of wheat is tiny. There's about 17,000 kernels of wheat in a pound. So it's a lot. There's a million kernels of wheat in a bushel. That's a lot of little kernels. Did you know that each one of those kernels has a germ in it, also known as an embryo? They call it an embryo. Why? This is the part of the seed that brings forth life, that actually grows and absorbs the nutrients and contains the DNA that the plant needs to produce more kernels. And so when the outer shell breaks down because of the moisture in the soil, the germ actually is able to escape and absorb that nutrients and to begin to grow into what? A new wheat stalk. It doesn't just grow into another kernel. It grows into a wheat stalk did you know that there are 50 more kernels on a stalk of wheat? There's 50 more. And so I'm not a farmer, so if this math doesn't work at all, if this is not how growing wheat works, I apologize. But if you took one kernel, 
planted it one year, and then you took the fruit of that one kernel, the 50, and you planted all 50 of those the next year. I know this is not how you farm wheat. Just forgive me. Bear with me. In four cycles of planting, you have six million kernels of wheat at the end of four cycles. Is that not incredible multiplication? So when Christ said, when a kernel of wheat dies, it bears much fruit. Four cycles of planting, you have six million kernels if each one of them are planted and grow 50 more. Do you understand the exponential growth there? I see some of you hobby farmers kind of nodding along, so I'm on the right track. So Christ said, I am like that kernel of wheat, and if I die, then I, my life will bear much fruit. So what is that fruit? This is the this is the jet tour of the Christian life, my friends. This is the, as quickly and as deeply as I can, <clears throat> this is the reality that Christ won for us and for himself because of his resurrection. <clears throat> Jesus Christ did not die with a flickering hope that someone would take notice and take up his cause. What a sorry depiction of Christ if anyone has told you that before, that he died as a martyr hoping uh, that this would bring about some kind of revolution, that people would be inspired by his death. No, 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 no. He died to produce much fruit. He made a confident assertion that because of his death, fruit would come, even knowing that that the guards and the authorities would look at his resurrection and say, we can silence this. We're gonna take care of this. We're gonna pretend this never happened. Christ said, it doesn't matter what they do. I'm going to bear fruit. A tidal wave of fruit is coming. Now, what's the first thing we have to understand about this kind of fruit? That it will be in kind. Fruit will be in kind. This I do know, that if you plant an apple seed, it will produce an apple tree. You will not have pears or peaches growing on an apple tree. Genesis chapter 1 verse 11 says that each seed would bear fruit after its own kind. Now, this may seem like, okay, we're going backwards in terms of biological sophistication in my lesson here. But this, we must understand that the fruit of Jesus' death and resurrection will be Christian fruit. It will be reproduction of who he is, of his nature, of his character, of his ambition, of his world. It will be, in fact, the Bible calls it in Acts chapter 11, those who were once called disciples of Christ, they eventually earned this nickname, called Christians, which means little Christs. In other words, those who follow Christ would become so much like him that those, in terms of a derogatory slur, would call them, you're just like a little Christ. Remember that crucified Savior? And they wore that name proudly. And they said, yes, we are little Christs. His life is in us now. Our life is now his life. We are reproductions of him. And so what... Who are these people? I want to show you three things that these people become as they follow after and believe in Jesus Christ. Number one, we have a people who are set free from slavery to sin. This is the biggest problem that humanity faces. Okay, it's not taxation. It's not socialism. It's not capitalism. it's It's not anything that we face in this world, economic or political, as our greatest threat. Our greatest threat as humans is that we are slaves to sin. We obey sin by nature. So the first thing that this fruit produces in the people who follow Christ is that they are set free from slavery to sin. Romans 6, verses 8 through 11. Listen, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will, listen to this, never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died 
to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to obey its passions, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought brought from death to life. So the first thing that we see in God's people is that they are free from sin. They are free from slavery to sin. Now, does that mean that we are all perfect in how we live our lives, in our relationships? No more slip up of the tongue. No more temper flares. No. We're still human, human, but we are free from slavery to it, which means that God has now given us the ability to conquer it and the ability to do and to desire good. Number two, what else do people who believe and, and follow after Christ, what else happens with them? 2 Peter 1.4. 2 Peter 1.4 says that we become more like God. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, listen to this, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So those who follow and believe in Christ become more like him. That's a process called sanctification. That is something that if you do not follow Christ, you have no hope of. You can do all the self-help you want. You can practice all the guru, uh, meditation, yoga, exercise, all the discipline you want to better yourself. You will not become more like Christ without his precious and great promises taking root in your life. By escaping from the corruption of sin and driving after the righteousness of God with the strength and presence of Christ in your life. So it's a people free from slavery to sin. It's a people who become more like God. Number three, this is kind of cool. We become a people who seek heaven's influence on earth. Some people sometimes characterize Christians as what we're too concerned about ourselves. We like to just hide in our little huddles and be like this super fancy, holy little church. And we like it that way. And we don't want anybody anybody bothering us in our little church. That's not the way God set up his people through Christ. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, when the disciples said, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? We don't know how to pray. One of the things that Jesus taught us to pray was, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, that's our prayer now. As Christians who follow Christ, our prayer is that we would see heaven come to earth through the way that we serve, through the way that we worship, the way that we love our neighbor as ourselves. that we would bring about the influence of heaven on earth. This is the reproduction of Christ. This is fruit after its own kind. This is what Christ did. This is now what we do in a much greater degree than Christ was ever uh, made to do because he was one person. We are now millions, in fact, billions. So number one, the fruit will be in kind. That is, it will be Christian. It will be Christ-like. Number two, the fruit will be, in our text says, much. It bears much fruit. Jesus didn't say, well, maybe one stalk of wheat will come up and that will be nice. I think Christ had in mind when he said it will bear much fruit, he had in mind the six million kernels after four seasons. Okay, that's a little bit of a stretch of inference, but Christ was saying it will be much more than you can believe. It will be much more than you can fathom right now. And you know what? I think he had to use this metaphor at the time because there's no way his disciples would have possibly believed or understood him when he said, this thing is going to be huge, guys. He was wanted for execution. 
He was despised and hated. All of his fame had melted away. After he died, there were very few who followed him still. They were told to wait in a small upper room before the Holy Spirit came. There was, there was no sense that the Christian faith with this, was this global force. It started off very small, but it did begin nonetheless. In Luke chapter 23, we read this on Friday morning. When he was crucified, there was a guard standing nearby, and when he saw the clouds roll in, when he saw Jesus cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. When, when Christ gave up his life and the sky went dark, the guard standing there said what? Surely this man was innocent. The fruit of Christ's death began in a small way, but it began immediately. New belief, new life, having seen him crucified it began without pageantry. We just read about the empty tomb. Two women came in order to anoint the body with spices. They didn't bring the news cameras. They did not bring their Snapchat. They did not get ready and dolled up to like, let's get a selfie with the empty tomb. There was no fanfare. They were coming because they just wanted to pay respects to their great Lord. There was no expectation. There was no understanding of the greatness that would come about. It was small. And yet when the angel said to them, don't stay here, go and tell the others, they went and did so. And so began the beginning of that great commission. So began those first people going and telling about the empty tomb. Some believed, some ran to the tomb, some doubted, just like it is today. Just like it is today. I love this. After the disciples later known as apostles, after they began their ministry in the near area in Antioch and Jerusalem and all around there, the Jewish authorities tried to silence the apostles because they were converting more and more people to Christ. They were going and planting churches and they were going and preaching. And the authorities just wanted them dead. They wanted this testimony to be silenced. Obviously, their bribe had not worked. And so now they needed to get rid of the messengers. And there's this one guy in the Jewish council in Acts chapter 5, and he says, guys, hold on. I don't know if this is a good idea because you have two options here. If this movement is just a man and these disciples are just excited and they believe this lie and they're all delusional and like Richard Dawkins says, you know, it's just, it's a delusion of their mind. He says, just let them go on their way because if this is from man, if this is like just these dudes, it'll fizzle out. It'll be gone in a generation maybe even less. Maybe after 10 years, they'll burn out. So he says, don't worry about it. Don't spend so much energy on it because here's the second option, and this scares me a little bit. He said, what if this is from God? What if what they're saying is true? What if Christ really is alive? And what if he is now the king of kings, seated at the right hand of God and ruling over everything? What if it's true? Do you really want to come up against God? Do you really want to stand toe-to-toe with God against his people? He's like, I don't. So he says to them, watch it. Watch your persecution because you may be barking up the wrong tree. You may be making a huge mistake. At that time, again, they, couldn't, they didn't quite know. It was still so early in the church. We had this small group and they were going around and some were believing. And it was like, we're not sure if this is the real deal yet. 
It began small, this fruit that Christ promised. It began small, but what continued to happen? It grew. Jesus predicted in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Hades is death. The gate of Hades is the death of the human. And so he says, even if you kill people in my church, my church will not die. Jesus predicted that beforehand. And so in light of that, they're saying, I'm not sure if it's a good idea to try to stand against these guys. Because it didn't end there. It did not end in the apostolic generation. In Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve fall from God, they, they turn away from him. And God is pronouncing this sort of the new reality. He's describing the new reality. Now that you've fallen away from me, there's going to be a new order on earth, and it's very sad. But he said to the serpent, you will bruise the heel of the woman, the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush your head. This is taken by many to to be a prediction of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that Satan would bruise the seed of the woman, that Christ would be crucified, but it would only be a bruise. It would not be fatal because Christ would rise again and would what? Crush the head of Satan. It would dismantle him. It would shackle him. It would obliterate his iron grip on the world through deception. This was finally secured. Jesus also talked about binding the strong man before he plunders his house. He's talking about Satan and his deceptive control that he had over the entire globe up until that point. Jesus said, you need to bind the strong man first before you plunder his goods. And this is what happened at the cross of Christ. Because as soon, and Dean read it for us this morning, as soon as he was raised up, what did he say to the disciples? All authority is now mine. We have plundered the house of Satan. We have plundered the kingdom of darkness. The authority is now mine. Therefore, go and make disciples. Because when you go, they will believe. The shroud of deception has been removed and they are now free to believe in God. Satan's tight grip on humanity finally fell broken as the gospel broke into the tongues and nations surrounding and ever since has been going into all the world. In other words, global conversion to Christ. It did not stay small. It did not stay in the Aramaic language. We saw the beginning of a global conversion to Christ. In 2015... Global census reports showed that 2.3 billion people in the world identified as Christian. Now, is that to say that they are all born again? Not necessarily. But it is far and away the most influential and largest religion on the face of the planet. Friends, we are not part of a dying, retreating faith in Christ, being pushed into a corner Christianity is always expanding and growing and its influence working its way into the culture. We may not believe that because we live in Canada, but it is happening all over the globe. The countries with the greatest rate of, of Christian increase is Russia, Congo, Ethiopia, Germany, and Italy. Not connected by geography, not connected by language, not connected by culture. Some of them may be close, but the reality is that the Christian faith is growing in numbers everywhere irrespective of its past connection to Christianity or not 
on many continents, in many places, the church is exploding and growing ever more, which is why I am so pleased to be a pastor in Canada where the gospel is awaiting another revival. It's awaiting another expansion. It's awaiting another explosion into our culture. It is, I believe, unless Christ comes back, it is going to happen again because the gospel, Christ said, is unstoppable. It will bear much fruit. So I'm not afraid of what's happening in our culture. I'm not discouraged by the loss of Christian confession. It is in a way, I I certainly grieve over the results of it, but I am confident that people will believe. Otherwise, why are we planting a church in Smith Falls? Why would we do that? Why wouldn't we go somewhere where it's easier, where we can fill the building right away with a bunch of other Christians already? I believe in planting a small church and not inviting other Christians necessarily but leaving seats open for those who are lost because they will hear the gospel if we are faithful to tell them and they will come and they will believe. I believe that's the fruit that Christ talked about. It will happen. Scriptures have been translated in whole or in part into over 3,000 languages of the world's uh, over 7,000. That doesn't sound like much, but there is no other book translated into more languages. There is no other book that has sold more copies. There is no other book that has printed so many times. Christianity accounts for the widespread um, advance of universal education and literacy, health care and poverty relief, the scientific method, architecture, music, and art that we have adored and welcomed into our canon of life. And we, we just saw the world's reaction to the burning of Notre Dame. Now, I know it's just a building. It's not where God lives. But the Christian worldview has produced some of the most beautiful, the world's most beautiful and acceptable and enduring forms of art. Why? Because there is a high view of God. Why do you think the ceilings, and again, God doesn't live in a cathedral, but they built cathedrals with the ceilings almost impossibly high so that man would feel in some architectural way that he was small and that God was large. The forms that Christianity has created have been enduring and have reflected the beauty of God. Again, I, this is no affirmation of the Christian or the, the Catholic church or anything like that, but I'm saying the things that we have held dear in terms of art and all its expressions have been largely based in the Christian worldview. The printing press was invented in order that the Bible could be reproduced. Friends, the influence and the spread of Christianity has impossibly large and grand implications on the history that we live today. Jesus' resurrection is what grants our resurrection. The redemption for all humanity, the final work on God's part to bring us home to him. One last thing. What is the fruit of his death, death and resurrection? Ultimately, it is the unending reign of Jesus Christ. It's the unending reign of Christ. Now, we need to recognize that there is a historic reality that is tied to the character and expression of who Jesus is in the world. We might think, well, didn't Jesus just always reign? He came down for a little bit and then he didn't. I have to read this whole passage because it's a run-on sentence. I can't start in the middle. Paul says, in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope 
that he has called you with, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance to all the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, here's where I'm getting to, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The unending reign of Christ began at his ascension. When he went up to heaven, God seated him and gave him the name that is above every name, which means, friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ, nobody is able to come along in your life and say, I have something higher. I have a greater authority. You have been wrong in Christ. No, Christ has the highest name. He has the final word. He is God's authority over the earth. In 1 Corinthians 15, some of you might doubt now and say, well, if Christ is reigning, why is it such a mess? 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says that we do not yet see all things in subjection to him. We don't see everything yet in subjection to him. But he is gradually submitting everything under him until the last enemy will be defeated. What is the last enemy? Death itself. In other words, life will be eternally bestowed on those who have followed him. No more death, no more dying, no more suffering of any kind. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. A famous prophecy of Christ. It's used more around Christmas time, but what did the resurrection, what did the resurrection ensure? Verses 6 and 7 in Isaiah 9 says this, For unto us a child is born and a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Listen to this. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. In other words, Christ's kingdom will not stop increasing. It will not stop increasing. It will not only not shrink, it will not stop getting bigger. This is the hope that has been secured because of the resurrection Now, I want to I close with one verse that might help bring this into perspective in terms of how we live now. Because many of us are just struggling with the everyday stuff of life, aren't we? Like this is, wow, Christ is on his throne and I have been given new life. I'm free from sin. But it doesn't feel like that always. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay busted, chipped, leaky jars in order to what? Show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's why you can still struggle in your flesh with what's going on in your life because it's meant to show that you are a vessel of the treasure but the power is not in you. The power is in God. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken. We are struck down but not destroyed. Listen to this. Always carrying in our body the death of Jesus. In other words, the life that we live, we are carrying with us the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our body. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. In other words, we still wrestle with both sides of Easter weekend. We are still called to die daily to sin, to die to ourselves, to die to the flesh. We still live in our bodies which commit sin. But this is in order that we could show that the power of the resurrection is not in us. It's not in our self-control or our willpower or anything else. But it is in the power granted by God to Christ for his people. That you would live in newness of life. 